Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum where we explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Glode. This episode is all about the Trust Over IP Foundation. What's the mission of the foundation? Well, the Trust Over IP's mission is to define a complete architecture for internet-scale digital trust that combines cryptographic trust at the machine layer with human trust at the business, legal, and social layers. Now, we'll be doing this episode in two parts. Part one is an introduction to the Trust Over IP with John Jordan, who is the executive director of the foundation. John also acts as the executive director of the British Columbia Digital Trust Service. And then the second part of the conversation today is with various working group leads where we discuss activities, deliverables, and collaborations happening within the foundation. So we have four guests in the second part. Carl Kneiss, who is Chief Operating Officer at IDRAM, Scott Perry, who is a principal at Scott S. Perry CPA, Andre Kudra, CIO at ESADAS, and Paul Knowles, Head of the Advisory Council at the Human Colossus Foundation. So here's part one, an introduction to the Trust Over IP with John Jordan. I wanted to start the conversation today, John, just by um, making the statement that achieving digital trust is difficult. And um, some background to this and some just trends overall is that um, businesses and governments and let's just generalize organizations are adopting digital mediums to interact with their customers, their employees, their vendors, their citizens. Um, Everyone's on a digital transformation journey today. Um, secondly, people are demanding for more privacy in, in basically everything nowadays. And I, I think we're seeing the best signals for this coming from the largest companies in the world that are like Apple is a very good example of this. That they're using privacy as a feature inside of their marketing, but they're, they're implementing stuff inside of their operating system and stuff to really push um, user centric uh, consent and, and privacy. Um, at the same time, the laws around privacy are rapidly changing and everyone's trying, trying to adapt to these. And so again, the, the statement I started off with uh, of achieving digital trust is difficult. I think people are realizing it's tough to achieve today. Um, and there, there's lots of fraudulent behavior and other stuff that seems to, to get in the way of people conducting businesses online. And so this takes us to kind of where we are today um, in the internet era where there is a trust gap. And I mentioned fraudulent behavior. So um, a very straightforward example of this that happens all the time are phishing attacks that happen online, where it's quite easy for someone to gain access to my email address, which is a central point for me to interact with all sorts of different organizations. It's very easy for someone that gains access to that to reset my passwords to different accounts that uh, I have all over the place. And to once they've reset my password to be able to take over my account, this, this happens every day. So it's very easy for people to impersonate other people on the internet. Um, so that's one side of it. And then there's another side where there's just tons of things that aren't possible to do on the internet today. And when, when we start talking about um, more... Um, high value, high risk transactions. These are things that are difficult. So most of the internet today or most of the value that's generated out of the internet today comes from advertising, comes from e-commerce, but high value, high risk transactions still relies on kind of this uh, real world or paper credential era. And so 
as we're looking to move from this internet era towards this new era of digital trust, I think it would be quite helpful if you were able to give an overview of kind of how we got here and maybe taking a step back before the internet era and talking about the paper credential era. I think it sets a good framework for where we're going with these new digital trust models. Sure. Thanks for that, Matthew. And it's, you know, it's good to be here. Um, um, that's a lot of material to work with there. So I'll give it, I'll give it a crack. Um, so first, we're talking about digital trust and trust in general. And it, that's a very, that's a very kind of high level idea. Um, and so let's sort of break that down a little bit to say that, you know, when we talk about trust, generally speaking, and the, what we're going to focus on is sort of a relationship between two parties. So like myself and another individual like yourself, perhaps, or myself and a business that I'm going to do something with or a business to a business, or, you know, I, my, my full-time job is with the province of British Columbia. So there's a, there's a kind of a trust model, not a kind of a, there is a trust model between, you know, the government and its citizens. And so in all of these cases, I'm talking about a relationship between two parties and, you know, the determination of trust is kind of a combination of things. It's like, do I have some sort of way of conveying trust between those two parties in the context of a transaction? And do I have an understanding of why I would trust that other party? So in the case of, um, you know, in the case of a business to a business, we tend to develop relationships, uh, you know, through human interaction. Like we find each other's business, we're gonna become a supplier or a customer or something. And then we tend to have a mechanism by which we formalize that relationship. We call it a contract. And contracts are everywhere. That's pretty much uh, one of the um, key mechanisms we have in society for establishing a formal relationship and defining the boundaries of that relationship. And what happens if somebody goes outside of those boundaries? It's governed by the contract. And what is the contract? governed by? Well, it's governed by law. Uh, and it's the law set forth by, you know, a democratically elected society in our case. Um, and those laws set out the boundaries for what can happen between businesses, between people and businesses, and between governments and people and governments and businesses. And so um, that is the nature of our society right now. We have essentially uh, personal uh, digital like personal identity is given to you by the government in a lot of ways like in an administrative sense sense not your not your sort of philosophical sense of being and who you are but the fact that you can say that your name is you know John Jordan and your age and so forth and those attributes those characteristics of you are tested to by the government based on an administrative process of registration and their authorities to manage that. And the same for businesses, we have business registries and they have a process for creating legal entities. And it's these sources of truth or these, uh, these administrative authorities that allow us to enter into contracts because we know who that party is. And we have physical evidence of this 
uh, through an identity documents, like, you know, in BC, the services card, you know, commonly we call it a driver's license or, you know, contracts, like the legal contracts that are drawn up. And, you know, if we need to, we can show it's articles of incorporation and so forth. And back before, you know, these things we call computers were around, it was kind of difficult to, to create, recreate these documents because printing presses were big and expensive and there was techniques that could be deployed by them to prevent fraud, you know, fraudulent copies of these things. And because things happened at paper speed, the risks were relatively low in terms of sort of broad band, like wide scale ability to, to defraud. So that's kind of like the foundation of our society. We have acts, those acts create powers in the government to identify persons, including humans and legal entities and the rules by which those entities can interact. And we formalize those rules and contracts. And that's, and that's kind of how the world sort of operates in a lot of ways. Um, but now in the sort of era of the web, um, you know, we don't have, we don't have a way to, to convey that kind of sort of architecture into the web. The web is a, has, has introduced a new actor uh, that we didn't really, that we don't have a, an equivalent in the, in the physical world. On the web, um, we have this idea of login. There's an intermediary between myself and another person or myself and the business I'm doing, trying to do something with and so forth. And because there's this intermediary that really has no defined role in any of our sort of legal and administ like legal structures, there's no such thing as like the login service in the Business Corporations Act of British Columbia or in the, you know, personal, what is it? The Freedom of Information and Personal Protection Act. Like there's no concept of login, it's just there's persons. And because we have this login service, there's this kind of like middle person in, the, in between our relationships. And that, that, that has some very significant consequences. One of the consequences is that it means that none of my relationships online are confidential. Meaning that they're not just known between myself and the party I'm trying to interact with. If I go to the gym or I go to rent a car or I go to the doctor or the lawyer or whatever, that interaction that happens is private. Like it's not known, generally speaking, by some other entity, including the government. Um, and if, we, if all of my relationships were known, uh, then we would be very unhappy. We call that surveillance. And that would be an erosion of our privacy. So we don't even have the conditions on the web for privacy just by the very architectural structure of it. There must be a login service in order for me to connect to another party, which, which in, like, just by definition means it's not confidential. And then often the data, the information that I exchange with that other party is subject to uh, loss. So that third part, that other party I'm talking to gathers a lot of information about me. And if they don't protect it well, it can be stolen. And then the other really bad side effect occurs, which is that information that's stolen about me, that's my personal information, 
it can be replayed. It can be used by a malicious third party that has gained access to it um, through some, say, poor stewardship of it by, you know, the business that I did business with, or worse, they sell it, you know, um, and they can, and the bad actor can replay that information and pretend to be me. And we call that identity theft. So I think what I've outlined here are the two big um, unforeseen consequences of the login architecture of the web, which is that none of my relationships are confidential and the data that is exchanged through that non-confidential interaction can be lost and replayed without my permission and knowledge. And therefore I can be impersonated. So I don't know if I covered all of your domains, but to me, these are the fundamental flaws. And it's not like it's, that was foreseen like 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It was simply the way we built computer systems because computer systems were expensive and we needed a way to share them. And the way to share them was to provide access to that computer system. And we did this through this new, um, new ceremony or ritual called login, which has no analog to use a kind of a funny word in the, um, in the physical world. There's no analog of that digital ritual in the physical analog world. And, and, and this is where we are, find ourselves, you know, in a, in a sort of a, in a kind of a difficult situation. So much to unpack there. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I love the focus just on relationships over and over again between two parties. And when, when you think about login being this kind of new party that shows up in the middle, they're at the end of the day, there, there was a reason why they showed up to try to um, make things more secure or make it actually happen, but they inherently just ended up removing value from, from the system altogether too, where, um, and also centralizing stuff, right? And it seems like there's that, that back and forth in technologies where things go from centralized or distributed to centralized to back to distributed. And it feels like in kind of the, the real world, the, or however you categorize the real world, but in the paper credential era um, is really, it's really a distributed way of doing things, right? Where there's nothing centrally stored. Everyone has their, their credential or their ID and they use it how they wish with the relationships that they interact with. Whereas in, in this kind of internet era, um, you kind of lost that direct uh, connection or that direct relationship with the entities that you were interfacing with. Um, so one of the things that, that we hear and people are always kind of curious of or thinking about this when they're looking to move into um, this next phase, which we'll call it the digital trust phase, um, where they play inside of the model. And the model has been represented in different ways. The one that's stuck a lot is this uh, credential trust triangle and uh, there's um, another one which kind of looks like a diamond, so I could call it the, the credential <laughs> trust diamond, which is uh, otherwise known as the governance trust triangle. Um, is that something that it was kind of, is that the model that was in the paper credential era? And is, is this, how is this model being replicated or uh, kind of in ingested into this new digital trust era? Right. I think um, 
I think the you know the short we'll get, we'll get in we'll dive into it a little bit. But the short answer is what I really like when I discovered this kind of you know trust triangle as we call it uh, in sort of like around 2017 as I as we started to understand it we went but this is how we do things already in the real world it's actually and sometimes I talk about let's just forget this really awful nightmare of the last 40 years of computing you know and remember how we did it back in the old days when we developed relationships with our friends our our business partners and so forth and we had the underpinning of the government you know the government is there like we don't always acknowledge know it or acknowledge it but I described how the government underpins the ability for us to establish these trusted relationships and um, you know we can go back to that now now this trust triangle is kind of like we use this kind of jargon called issuers holders and verifiers um, and that exactly maps to the world that we have today their roles really and we often play those roles at different different times in a interaction. So uh, to give an example, um, you know, let's use the business registries because I've been doing a lot of work with BC registries over the years. So originally we would say BC registries is going to be a verifier. It's going to take on the verifier role because you're going to show up at BC registries door and you're going to say, I'd like to incorporate a business. And they say, great, you know, um, tell me some things about yourself and so forth and so on so that, so that I can understand, you know, who I'm doing business, who I'm working with, and then what does he want to do? So they're verifying this information. They have a business process to approve it. And when they approve it, they become an issuer. And what they issue to you, your articles of incorporation and perhaps a few other documents, I don't dive into the super gory details of the incorporation, but the ultimate expression of your successful uh, administrative act of uh, creating a corporation is your articles of incorporation. And you would take those articles of incorporation and you might go down to the bank and open a bank account with them using proof of your identity, proof of your articles of incorporation and proof of you being an officer in that company. And so at that point, the bank has been a verifier and then they issue to you a bank account. All the while you as the individual and you as the individual representing the corporation are what's called the holder. So the holder is the person or entity that receives things from issuers and presents them to verifiers. This is very, very common. As soon as you sort of like get us, you know, get the jargon sort of aside, you realize this is exactly what happens in any kind of, you know, trusted interaction. Like all of them. There are and, zero and the fact, types of interaction. And the fact that yeah. you play all three roles. And so, so yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah, and it depends on where you are in a particular process, what role you might be playing. You might not always play all three, but you're going to play a couple of them, likely. And um, so... Um, yeah, so that's kind of like, that's the way we've always organized things. And it just has taken a while to, uh, in the computing world, to, um, to come to a place where we recognized that there is a way to replicate that kind of 
set of relationships using digital technology. And that's exactly uh, what the role of the Trust Over IP Foundation is trying to do, which is to introduce a couple of things. One is to kind of bring a little more structure to the, to the set of technical capabilities that allow us to do this. And two is, and this is really a key differentiator of the Trust Over IP Foundation uh, mission is that it recognizes that there are actually two parts to trust. There's the like technical mechanical aspect of trust. And I referred to that earlier as contracts. Those are technical documents that are highly structured and understood and recognized by law and in the paper, you know, physical world. And then there's a set of governing uh, authorities and, and uh, aspects that, that make that contract enforceable, right? So that's, I talked about the Business Corporations Act or, or it'll be named different things in different jurisdictions, but it's always there. And that's exactly the legal framework under which a contract even is valid. That what makes it possible to recognize a corporation or a nonprofit society or those different legal entities recognized in a court and able to enter into agreements and so forth and so on. Um, so that's the governance framework. And actually in the digital world, it's the same. It's just that we have no way of representing a contract or an agreement or even a relationship in some legally recognizable way digitally. Um, that isn't something that was you know, foreseen by the technical model of the, of the, of the web. Um, so yeah, so that's um, the mission of the Trust Over IP Foundation. The, the uniqueness of it is this bringing together of the business legal aspects combined with the technical aspects that allow us to create the conditions for trusted digital relationships. And we hope that if there's broad adoption of this, that we will be able to effectively, the big vision is to be able to, if you know, parties choose, to have any kind of contractual relationship possible, you know, using internet as the communications mechanism and essentially, uh, you know, replacing the web model. There would be no logins, relationships would be peer to peer, and there would be trusted interactions between those peers. And ideally, privacy laws and other laws would recognize those interactions as uh, equivalent to what we have today in the in the physical world, as you know, as contract contracts that are upheld. Um, I don't know what the right legal term that are um, able to be upheld in the in the in the court systems of your jurisdiction. It's kind of a big vision, but I think that's I think that's where we want to go. I mean, I think that would be a fair representation of the goals of the members. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And um, having had many interactions with many um, dedicated and smart members of the Trust Over IP, I think that that's everyone's goal of, it's like the internet has done such incredible things and created so much value, but now to take it to the kind of that next step, um, it's, it's about creating this other layer that gives us this digital trust here where, where you've described perfectly there of the the trust triangle model of the issuer holder and, ver and verifier where today, a lot of the times the verifier in 
uh, scenarios is is referred to as the relying party, where the, yeah. they're relying on data from someone. Whereas today they don't have to rely on anything specific. Whatever they're they're given at point of transaction um, can be verified against its source. Could be verified that it's reliable, that it's authentic, uh, its provenance. It, there's transparency features with this too, and all of this is kind of made possible and that this whole model fits within this dual stack architecture that you just described uh, the the governance and the technical where you have the, the business the legal the tech on, on the technical side um just to finish and what we're going to do john is we're, we're going to have uh, some working group leads uh, have a conversation with us after this to just talk a little more about the different working groups and the different layers within yeah. the dual stack architecture do you mind just uh, giving uh, listeners uh, of the podcast who might, might not be familiar with this, just kind of what are these four layers, how they play together and what, why they matter so much in this model? Sure. Um, well, probably like, as I mentioned, this idea of the, the trust over IP model or stack is that it has two sides. One is a side that is concerned with the um, technical means by which to establish you know, trusted digital relationships. So peer-to-peer -peer connections, uh, protocols that can work through those peer-to-peer -peer connections, and in particular protocols that allow for uh, what we call verifiable credentials to be issued to holders and for verifiers to be able to request from holders uh, proofs, cryptographically protected proofs that they're holding these credentials and sharing the data that's held with them under the control of the holder. Um, and the other side is the governance side, which says that the services and means by which these technical capabilities are offered actually have a set of rules and actors behind them that you can, that you can inspect and you can decide if you like how they're operated and therefore make a determination about their trustworthiness. Um, and the working groups are structured in such, such fashions, so or we have working groups concerned with uh, the technical stack, and we have working groups um, concerned with the governance stack. And essentially the first set of working groups looked at, there's a, let's, let's, under, let's, have, let's create a community of practice around how we create governance artifacts, and let's have a community of practice around how we create technical artifacts. And then let's have a group where we understand um, if we wanna put these things into practice, what would it take? So we have the governance stack working group and the technical stack working group, which are more concerned with creating the generalized tools, documents, standards, and so forth. And then we have the ecosystem uh, governance working group and the um, Utilities Governance Working Group. I might be messing up the names, I apologize. Um, they're not in front of me right now. But these are communities of practice where practitioners come together and share their uh, expertise and share their um, experiences so that they can you know, help others create new ones faster and better uh, with you know, less, less uh, friction so we can learn from each other. And that's really, I think, if I, as I, over a year now, we've been, just about a year we've been together. I think the real value that we have right now in Trust of IP is this 
idea that there's a community of practitioners out there that are learning together, sharing with each other and creating outcomes like uh, whether it's, um, um, uh, you know, implementation guides or blueprints or uh, other kinds of knowledge-based artifacts that can, that codify how to create, you know, community, like uh, ecosystem, um, eco digital ecosystems or, um, you know, communities where there's a common set of trust interactions that they want to be able to describe to their members. And um, I think that is uh, really an important part of the Trust Over IP uh, organization and what's new and different. And what I'm really happy about and what I think is gonna be our area of growth is that we are bringing people into this world that would never have been involved in the more technical communities out there. We have uh, organizations that are not technology based organizations. They obviously use technology and they recognize the importance of trusted digital relationships to their business. And they wanna learn more and participate in the growth of that. And they see it as a competitive advantage to their businesses to be able to understand how to do that. And I think that's really the, um, the direction that we wanna continue is to you know, keep growing that community and more and more helping others understand like why it's important that they have you know, trusted digital relationships with their customers, with their citizens and with their friends and family for that matter. I think it's incredible to see the over the past year the amount of ecosystems that have been popping up and coming to well, new ones popping up and existing ones coming into the trust over IP for uh, guidance on on uh, how, how to build uh, with digital trust in the core of their digital transformation strategy. I think it's been over the past year since the trust over IP has been active just the popularity around verifiable credentials is, is growing like crazy. I think everyone is interested in it. And I think once people kind of uh, get their beaks wet a little bit with verifiable credentials, they realize all the other stuff that, hey, if they took seriously, like the, the governance uh, pieces that we're talking about at the core, um, the peer-to-peer the -peer communication channels that totally disrupt the way we do things via APIs today. Uh, once people start realizing this stuff, they start seeing kind of uh, the value beyond just the simple like economic efficiencies or just the checkbox compliance stuff that that people use these tools for today. Um, and the last comment is that I, I really echo your thoughts of the community. The community is strong, it's vibrant, it's growing. Um, you've done a fantastic job, you and everyone else, bringing these, these people together. It's so interesting, like you alluded to, seeing people from different areas that you would never talk to in your day-to-day -day life, but you're able to learn from them. And the power of these open communities is you could build on top of, of what's happening, right? So you're, you're able to really leverage the learnings and the failures of other projects and, and build on top of it. And I think in in this digital, digital age or in, in the age of digitally native stuff, um, the value ultimately comes from communities. So whoever has the strongest communities is going to create the strongest digital value. So I, I love how the trust, trust Over IP is set up to really push this forward. That was part one with John Jordan, where we gave an introduction to the Trust Over IP Foundation. Now we're going to move to part two of the conversation. 
where I have a discussion with various working group leads from the foundation, where they discuss activities, deliverables, and collaborations that are happening. Here's part two. Hey guys, thanks for doing this. Uh, what I wanted to do today with each one of you is, um, since um, some of you may be new to the audience that's listening to this, uh, some of you um, have been on existing podcasts before, but I think what would be quite helpful as a start is if uh, each one of you could give a brief introduction on yourself. So kind of stating your background, what expertise you bring to the Trust Over IP, and what interested you in the Trust Over IP to begin with. And so maybe let's start with a newcomer to the podcast. I'll throw it over to Carl if you want to open it up, Carl. Thanks, Matthew. Um, again, my name is Carl Knais. I'm the COO of IDRAMP. Um, our background is in, in building enterprise uh, ecosystems, solving complex identity problems and, and service delivery for multinationals. Um, our interest in trust over IP particularly was based on our, our, our experience working with uh, corporations and, and business organizations solving uh, ecosystem development problems, we, we find that the need for repeatable design patterns, um, uh, open source standardized, standardized frameworks really helps our customers save time and money and really does simplify adoption uh, of, of particularly the new technology around verifiable credentials. So trust over IP was really a natural fit for ID ramp and um, and uh, we joined up and as founding members, and, and uh, I've been working to host the Ecosystem Foundry Working Group. Um, so that's me. Thank you, Carl. Um, and we'll get to the Ecosystem Foundry uh, in, in a few minutes. Maybe I'll shoot it over to someone who is uh, participating in another Foundry Working Group, Andre Kudra. Andre, you've been on the, the podcast before talking about identity and access management and how uh, verifiable credentials and the trust over IP stack could be used for, for those use cases, which I know Carl are <laughs> familiar to, to what you guys do as well. But uh, Andre, do you mind giving a brief introduction uh, for any newcomers on yourself, your expertise, and what brought you to the trust over IP? Absolutely, Matthew. Thank you for the opportunity to, to being here again. So my name is Andre Kutra. I'm the CIO of Isatus AG in my day job. I fill various roles in SSI community groups, uh, in, in my in my night and uh, weekend job basically so i'm a trustee of the sovereign foundation and uh, my company is artists is a founding and steering member of trust oip and uh, i am a board member of the teletrust it security association in germany with more than 340 members so i try to promote uh, self-sovereign identity everywhere in these in these groups and um, yeah since 2015 when we first ran into ssi i said this is the way ahead and uh, when when last year the community convened basically to form trust over IP as the organization which will deliver the missing trust layer in the network world. We said, well, we have to be absolutely part of this uh, of this group and have to be part of the community in this in this new foundation, trust over IP. And also from a from a European perspective, as we are based in Germany, we want to bring in the European angle into the works. And I'm yeah, since the beginning, proudly being serving in this in the steering committee and also as chair the co-chair of the utility foundry working group thank you andre it's uh, fantastic to have you back on here um i'll throw it over to scott do you mind giving a brief introduction on yourself and what brought you to the trust over ip sure thanks matthew so i'm scott perry i'm a uh, i'm an inter i'm an an auditor in the identity and cybersecurity space and i've been doing that for my whole career 
and uh, got very focused in the PKI area about 15 years ago when I was working with the US federal PKI and creating uh, standards around how you can interoper inter interoperate uh, identity credentials in that uh, ecosystem. I am also a uh, licensed web trust auditor and uh, I'm a player in that ecosystem where you exchange secure certificates uh, that get attached to websites. And so I have worked with a number of different governance authorities. And so I was seeking fairness by actually participating in the rules that are, that are established between interoperable trust and got involved in the verifiable credentials and SSI space about five years ago, working uh, to establish the governance framework for sovereign and have architected the, uh, the trust assurance framework for sovereign as well. So I'm a co-chair of the Trust Over IP Governance Stack Working Group, and it's great to be here. Thanks, Scott. And uh, last but not least, someone who's been on the podcast uh, before it was a, quite a popular episode, Paul. Uh, a lot of people are interested in, in what you're bringing to the community, but uh, for those who don't know you, do you mind giving a brief introduction on yourself and what brought you to the Trust Over IP yeah. community? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Paul Knowles. Um, I'm the head of the uh, advisory council at the Human Colossus Foundation. Um, so I guess at the foundation, we have combined expertise in three synergistic domains um, of decentralized authentication, decentralized semantics, and decentralized governance. And we kind of sit at the centroid point of, of, those, of those domains. Um, my background is, uh, is really with clinical trial um, data management um, and, and uh, statistical analysis. Um, and in that domain, I have 25 years of, of really rich semantic experience. Um, and at Trust Over IP, when, uh, when it was first developed, um, there wasn't a space really specifically for semantics. Um, and uh, over at Trust Over IP, they kind of work with a dual, dual stack model of governance versus technology, uh, not mentioning semantics at all. So, um, so I approached the, uh, the, the leadership group and uh, suggested, why don't we set up a semantics uh, group? Um, so that we can talk about, you know, how data can, uh, you know, geometrically and uh, semantically fit together, which which you need to do for sort of good machine learning and anal analytics and stuff. So at um, at Trust Over IP, as I say, I'm uh, I'm the convener of the Inputs and Semantics Working Group. Um, the input side is more about, um, you know, uh, authentic authentication. Uh, and the semantic side is more um, is more about uh, deterministic semantics. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to be here, and uh, yeah, looking forward to the chat. Thanks, everyone. Um, so what I would like to do now is jump into kind of the day-to-day -day what's happening inside of the Trust Over IP. And so there are tons of activities happening throughout various working groups within the foundation. And um, just as background, when the foundation uh, came to be just over a year ago, there were four initial working groups that were set. So there were two working groups that kind of fell within, we call a stack category and two that fell within foundry categories. So the two that fell within the stack category were the technical stack working group. And there was also the governance stack working group. And then the two that fell within the foundry stack where the or the foundry category where the utility foundry working group and the ecosystem foundry working group and throughout the past year um, paul and other folks through the inputs and semantics working group kind of as paul just described real, realized there was 
a gap in in kind of um, the work that was happening. So there was a new working group that that was created, the inputs and semantics working groups that fell inside the stack category as well. Um, so we're going to go through each one of these working groups to give a better idea to the audience of what's actually happening within the trust over IP. And I think the an exciting one I would like to start with, and I think Carl, you're you're lucky to have visibility into this and to uh, be a chair of this working group is the ecosystem foundry working group that sits at that top layer of the trust over IP stack. Um, can you give a bit of background of kind of why you got into the ecosystem foundry within the trust over IP, why you took that leadership position and how things have evolved and what's happening within the ecosystem foundry? Certainly, and part of my background included uh, over 20 years of working with uh, enterprise architecture, solution architecture, service delivery, and again, in, in that ecosystem development space. So, so uh, when the opportunity came up to form the ecosystem foundry working group, I was uh, I was very eager to volunteer to to, to chair that. And so, I, I guess, uh, how have you seen? What happens from session to session now? Um, are you seeing a rise of more ecosystems that are using the trust over IP stack? Like, what's the what direction is this going in? Well, what what, what the ecosystem foundry working group is focused on is 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 really acting as the front door that that business layer of of the uh, trust over IP stack that you you, you saw in the introduction, um, and as that front door, we help uh, business organizations and consor consortiums incubate their governance frameworks uh, and their ecosystems to be shared as sort of open source repeatable design patterns um, for whatever their stakeholders may be. We, and we have really quite a diverse community that is, is growing uh, at, a, at a pretty regular and rapid pace. For example, we have uh, the Yoma ecosystem uh, work ecosystem that's sponsored by UNICEF focused on helping youth in, in Africa, uh, up their skills and promote themselves in, in for for employment opportunities. We have the Global Legal I Identifier Foundation, which has really been uh, acting as a pioneer in adapting verifiable credentials as global legal identifiers. The Good Health Pass ecosystem uh, that that was recently formed as a working group within Trust Over IP is working with uh, ID2020 and the World Health Organization to create. Uh, interoperable solutions, uh, working with many different providers. I mean, I think that ecosystem alone has roughly 80 people I've seen in, in some of those meetings, all from different organizations, medical, private consultants, um, government government folks, really dynamic. There's uh, another ecosystem uh, sponsored by Entidad and the United Farm Workers that's focused on helping migrant farmers have identity and use identity in, in their, in their food, food distribution networks. Um, we have education ecosystems, uh, and 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 the list goes on. Uh, there's 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 so many I really couldn't couldn't really go through the whole list. But but at the end of the day, what 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 we're seeing is is that businesses have a need for a standardized architecture and a standardized approach to these governance governance questions that they can reproduce and repurpose to help them do business. So you know some of the some of the some of the discussion in the in the industry around governance is is a little bit confused because governance is often perceived as a a blocker or a bureau, bureaucratic inconvenience, um, and and what we're seeing in the Foundry Working Group is we're leveraging uh, all the great thinking that comes out of the Stack Working Groups to incubate and form these business models and, and really help accelerate adoption of this new technology and then first at, for, at first and foremost standardizing trust across different business business uh, communities and business uh, objectives, so. 
Thanks, Carl. And so, so Scott, um, yourself kind of um, being a co-chair or the chair of the governance stack working group, would um, are the foundry working groups kind of customers to, to the stuff that, that you're doing? How do you collaborate with the ecosystem foundry working group? And um, maybe if you mind giving a little more background on, I know this is probably the broadest question <laughs> I could ask just about what, what is governance in the context of digital trust, but maybe given a little more background on that. Sure, and yes, exactly what you're saying as far as uh, Carl's group and my group and how we interrelate. So he, Carl's is out there um, doing the outreach and working with, you can just understand, a whole diverse group of uh, needs in the marketplace. And uh, you know, Carl needs standards. He needs standards, specifications, recommendations, templates, white papers, tools, so that he can provide you know, that, that, that outreach uh, for, for his customer base. And so that's what the governance stack working group, you know, is focused on. And so, you know, where do you start? So if you're building a house, you got to have a blueprint. And so it's, you know, if every builder that's building a house has a standard set of how blueprints look, you know, they have certain colors, certain notations, certain categories, so that, you know, when they get that blueprint, they know exactly how to build a house. So you have to start with the blueprint of what a governance framework looks like. And so we've um, spent some you know, time and energy in putting together what we call the governance meta model. And it really is the standard set of categories and requirements that every governance um, framework needs to have. And the structure so that you know, when, when they become interoperable, you know exactly where to find certain pieces of information and certain pieces of information are required in every governance framework. And certainly it has to also have the flexibility to be able to work with a variety of different risk models associated with it. Some, some ecosystems are you know, dealing with lots of requirements due to the mitigation of risks. Some don't have you know, those constraints and such. And so we need to be able to provide all of the options to, to serve a you know, wide variety of different needs. So, you know, but we, we do have very you know, focused areas that we've already invested in. We, we have a scope, you have to define what it, what's the ecosystem, what's the boundaries of it, what are the components and the players and actors that participate in it, who governs it? whether there's an authority or a designated party that drives uh, the requirements, you know, that's, that's listed in must statements or should statements or may statements that, that drive um, kind of the directives that happen from the governance authority. You know, what are the principles that are operating within that governance authority? And certainly, you know, you know the Sovereign Foundation has advanced a lot of principles of SSI and some of those are actually baked into some of the governance frameworks that we're seeing. And so we also need to have objectives within those governance frameworks. What are, they, what are the outcomes they're trying to achieve? And it obviously needs to be risk-based to drive the mitigation because you know, basically in the broad spectrum of things, you know, governance frameworks try to reduce risk in some way, shape or form and include you know, privacy and security by design. We'll get back to governance a little later on in the conversation. Uh, I want to hop to the other Foundry working group. Um, 
And I think Andre, it's interesting. Like it's interesting how Scott described this too, that they're, they're kind of serving the foundry working groups and you obviously want to make sure that you're serving it with a purpose. So really having the business requirements being driven down from the ecosystem working group is really pushing where a lot of the, the innovation and standards needs to happen throughout the rest of the stack. And I think Andre, it's your similar experience uh, as Scott through the Sovereign Foundation, but you have quite a nice lens as well that you are working on an ecosystem solution through ID Union, but you're also co-chair of the Utility Foundry Working Group, which is on layer one of the Trust Over IP stack. So do you mind giving um, a, a little more background on kind of the activities that are happening at layer one at the Utility Foundry Working Group and how, how you look at the collaboration with the rest of the organization? Yeah, absolutely, Matthew. So I think what we need to start off of is um, getting a, bit, a little bit of a, bit, a better picture of what is in fact the utility we are talking about, right? So, so everyone is talking about utilities. So these are kind of the fundamental things that are, that are laying the foundation for everything else that, that's happening on the, on the dual stack. And uh, a utility uh, is, is something that uh, obviously everyone has a different understanding from, but what we, what we in fact and try to make it uh, in layman's terms, we are, we are building an infrastructure that is comparable to things like a mobile telephone network. So we're basically with a utility creating the trust infrastructure where you can have the cryptographic trust mechanisms in our network world, which everyone can use. So the utilities are building the fundamental block of infrastructure to actually base the use cases on that are then defined by, by ecosystems and, and the governance therein. So actually this is what the utility foundry working group is, is dealing with. And we help everyone who wants to embark on his own utility journey to getting up to speed and get started. And what we do in a, in a more practical term is we give them um, a, a guideline based on which they can execute their own journey. And this is the six stage model that we have laid out, which is called our utility project lifecycle management guide, where you first uh, gather your information in the learn stage, then you convene uh, to, to get together and build your, your utility and get the, the people together who wanna do it then you define the management and governance scope and the methods and tool that you want to use. And then you actually create. So before that, that's all data gathering and, and getting up to speed. And in the create stage, you actually get together and establish a legal entity, which you may want to have. And then uh, in the implement stage, you implement the governance model and onboard the members. And then you maintain everything which means you run the ledger, the utility, the infrastructure on which the, the trust, uh, trust layers above are, are built. And uh, as, I've, as I've mentioned, governance in that uh, also, actually you have to have some governance framework that is in fact governing the network and the, the, the utility and the actors of the utility and the participants in the network. And this is what we help to, to people to understand and, and traverse through these stages to ramp up their own utility. And this is exactly what you said as an example, ID Union is a very uh, major initiative uh, in Germany, which is both a utility project and a project that is funded by the Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs in Germany to implement use cases. So we are exactly doing this and getting through these stages and making it work on this example. And Sovereign has been the, the, the pioneer in, in that round, having done all that without the, the trust of these stages being there to guide them. I think we, we share the same thought, Andre, and 
repeated this over and over again, people um, t tend to overlook this layer sometimes as it's not, not the most attractive thing just from an outside perspective, but um, the need to have this root, root of trust under the stack is, uh, is crucial. And so I think the, the work that the Utility Foundry Working Group is doing to kind of provide that base for everything to function um, is tremendously important. Not to forget to mention that uh, this is obviously uh, something that is not uh, not only driven by uh, by me. Uh, there, I have great help there. So Dan Zolfi was the co-chair uh, all along, and obviously you, Matthew, are doing a tremendous job and and supporting all the activities and and throwing in many work hours in that. So let's take this opportunity to thank you also for being there. That's why I talked it up, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Th th thanks, Andre. Um, Paul, and then so, so yourself with the inputs and semantics working group, but uh, do you see yourself being kind of, I guess, inside this uh, being a stack working group, you're also a, a, a supporter to uh, the foundry working groups and the, the way I look at the, the stuff that um, your working group is doing is that for, for, for this stack to take off from many different lenses for adoption to really pick up, a lot of the stuff you're doing is gonna facilitate that. So what, what's the output that's coming out of the working group and how are you collaborating with the various ecosystems? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's, it's, a, it's a different lens um, than, than the other uh, stack groups. Um, so where they look at uh, governance versus technology, we look at uh, uh, data, in, data inputs versus semantics or data entry versus data capture, if you like. Um, and and because it's quite broad, because we're still obviously a very full space, uh, without having to specify, uh, you know, where where people uh, are in the in the four layer stack, it's kind of turned into a bit of an innovation space. In that, um, you know, people that are working in with centralized solutions and everything, they they still have a space uh, in this uh, in this whole ecosystem to be able to express what they're doing and their needs and their and, and bringing all of their their expertise within their domains into this uh, this kind of rich space. Um, and then, you know, so I'd say for anybody new coming into trust over IP, the inputs and semantics working group is a nice entry point um, from a centralized space um, because they can come in, they can learn about decentralized technologies. Um, and then, uh, you know, when when the time's right, they can be pushed into, you know, the uh, uh, the ecosystem side or the or the um, the utility side or the, um, uh, the the technology or the governance. So, uh, it's I think it's a nice place to to to, to enter the enter the space. Um, it's also a very uh, kind of a, that we work on a on a vertical structure and a horizontal structure. So when I say a horizontal structure, we've got a bunch of task force under, underneath that. So we have the, the notice and consent task force, uh, the privacy and risk task force, and the storage and portability task force. And you know all of the discussions that are happening in those uh, groups, uh, they all kind of uh, feed back into the, uh, the, into the inputs and semantics working groups so that uh, you know, we can start thinking about how some of this stuff knits together, um, how, uh, um, uh, but having this kind of really learning this, uh, this huge amount of expertise. So for example, you know, the storage and portability task force, you know, we've had people from Inrupt, uh, you know, talking about solid pods. We've had um, next week, they're talking about authentic 
blockchain data containers. Uh, so, you, you know, you've got all these kind of new technologies coming into this space. And then we kind of, as a group, find out what are the best bits of those and try and work together to, to, uh, to, to get a nice interoperable solution for all of those things. Um, but we also work on a, on, a, on a vertical as well. So, um, you know, we've got like a healthcare task force and, uh, and underneath the health test healthcare task force is a, a fire focus group. So those guys have been super busy at the moment because of the, the good health pass. Uh, collaborative, uh, you know, I, I, I co-chair the um, the common data models and and elements group, and in that, uh, the EU and the World Health Organization has said that fire is the the common data model that they 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 want to use. So obviously, all the work they're doing in the fire focus group is super important for that whole initiative as well. So. Um, it's a very active group, uh, and it's pretty unrestrained with the kind of stuff that uh, that can come into it. Yeah, I, I really love the. I think all of you have showcased the collaborative aspect of the Trust Over IP of how uh, the foundation is able to work with different communities, and people are able to come in, people are able to share stuff. Uh, you, you mentioned Interrupt right now, Paul and Carl, when talking about the Good Health Pass earlier. You mentioned a couple of other organizations. Um, so, so I think that's not talked about enough about how how friendly the community is and how easy it is to, to work together and just learn off of each other. And everyone has the same goal of driving digital trust forward and that benefits everyone, right? It's more, more about growing the pie together. I think what we would like to do now is maybe open it up and have a little more of a discussion. Um, so we, we, we've covered the different working groups. I have a few topics here that um, I'll, I'll throw your way. Um, I'll throw the first one towards you, Carl, and um, I'll let anyone please feel free to jump in as I'm sure you have th thoughts of your own and experience around this as well. The first thing I, I would like to, to, to ask, and I'll throw this to you, Carl, is how has your experience been selling the trust over IP stack to enterprises or to C-level executives? How, how, how do you approach these conversations? Our enterprise customers come to us with enterprise stacks. Right. So they are, you know, an enter a typical enterprise already has a pretty robust and usually complicated uh, governance uh, and, and their own uh, conglomeration of technology that that's architected together. So what, what we do is, is show them how trust over IP can be used to augment those existing um, investments and in existing e ecosystems to help bring uh, amplify standardization, amplify interoperability and, and, and future proofability. I think that's not a word, but um, you know, to, to, to help them adopt, incrementally adopt things like verifiable credentials, uh, great new utilities like the ones you're hearing about in, in this session. Um, so again, it's a, it's a tool, it's a tool set, the trust over IP stack to help Help organizations both both mature, most of our our customers are again established enterprises, so they come with with all that uh, baked in. And again, that's my day to day. But in in trust over IP, we also have uh, what what, are, what we call greenfield ecosystems, meaning they they're starting from scratch and they don't have to traverse all that. And and again, uh, to use your term, the way it's sold is to say, here's here you know you have a hundred questions. Well here's a hundred answers, right? So it's a simple way to, 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 to help answer problems that are repeated around creating trust um, in a digital and distributed ecosystem. 
Yeah, if I if I may add a bit uh, to that. So obviously, um, people have um, have often heard a variety of things about SSI and and the missing trust layer and the internet and so on. So they have a very um, well not so defined uh, understanding of of what's going on and wh what this can do for them. So actually, the the dual stack helps very well to to basically slice and dice the problem and illustrate uh, connecting points for, for the solution and also for their understanding. So they, you basically can use the model to pick people up where they are standing and traverse through the dual stack and make it more tangible to, to them. And then in the end, come to, a, come to an understanding where you tell them, look, if you, if you embark on this journey, you have the potential of cutting your own complexity, exactly what you're talking about, Carl, like the, like the complexity and conglomerates of infrastructure, which has heterogeneous governance and, and not, not so aligned processes. So you can help them portray a, a future where they can cut the complexity, reduce the complexity and uh, use uh, the modules that trust over IP with uh, its technology components uh, is, is delivering to solve uh, this and get to a leaner organization, which is more future proof. That's, that's exactly the, the same uh, that, I, that I perceive. And Trust ORP is a great vehicle of transporting all these messages in a, a concise and a consistent way. So Matthew, I, I think one of the things that's key is that, you know, as Carl had mentioned, people come with their own sphere of control if they issue credentials, they can manage what it is, but we're dealing with, you know, situations where uh, an ecosystem creates and issues uh, credentials, whether it's for SSI or for other purposes, and other ecosystems not related to them need to be able to rely on that. Where are they going to go to create that transitive trust between ecosystems? That's what we're trying to define within our organization. And we're seeing that, uh, for example, with the Good Health Pass, where you know you have health credentials that are very focused and very health related, but these these individual credentials are being used for travel, totally different industry, and they have to be able to work together to you know compare the requirements between those needs between you know the issuers and the verifiers in order to um, benefit the populace. I'd, I'd also add that, um, you know, in a truly decentralized uh, um, economy or, or dynamic data economy, we call it, um, there's three three main domains that need to be truly decentralized, right? There's, the, there's, um, there's identity management, there's data management, and there's access management. And so in those spaces, you're kind of uh, in a data lifecycle, you can kind of think of it as data entry, data capture, data exchange. And uh, in, in those three spaces, it's really about authentication uh, in, in the, uh, you know, what, it, what you enter into the system, it comes from an authentic source. There's a deterministic uh, semantics, meaning that uh, once you've captured data from, once it's gone into the system, you have to capture it and structure it. Uh, and you want to know that all of those things, that, uh, those items that you're capturing are deterministic and meaning that, uh, you know, no matter how many times you copy it across various networks, that same hash is always, always equates to the same thing. And then the last piece is, uh, is decentralized, um, um, governance, if you like, and that's all about uh, access management and, and authorization. So that's more the data exchange part. 
So when you talk about decentralized um, governance, you want to make sure that there's nothing getting in the way, um, uh, you know, no no roadblocks getting in the way of of those sorts of uh, access issues. Um, so it's kind of rich. It's quite rich. There's uh, it's not just focused on on verifiable credentials. I think a lot of people come into this space and think it's all about authentication, but it's actually broader than that. It's about authentication, determinism, and and authorization. Uh, ju just to riff off of that, uh, the comment about kind of, you don't necessarily know if you're creating credentials within an ecosystem, how they're going to be used um, in the future. So the, the comment about health credentials being used for travel. Um, so this comes back to ensuring that when you are creating a supply of credentials inside an ecosystem, you want to make sure that um, it's, <laughs> it's good quality data, right? Just to, to dumb it down and just get personally coming from um, um, the technology space related to decentralized technologies, it's the same thing over and over again. It's just, if you have garbage in, there's garbage out, right? So you wanna make sure what's coming in is high quality. Um, so is that, Scott, some of the stuff when, when you're talking about building governance models and maybe working with the Good Health, health Pass to do these things, what are some of these components that you take very seriously within the governance models if it comes to registries or uh, how do you look at that whole concept? Well, you know, there's a variety of ways that you can get, you know, transitive trust. So, you know, you start with the, the, the cryptographic layer, making sure that we're all using, you know, same cryptographic tools. And we have machine readable rules engines and the rules need to be built in. Everyone needs to have agreement on what rules need to be put into these engines and the output. So we have, you know, you have requirements, but also you have great disclosure. So as, as kind of Paul was mentioning, it's pretty, you have to have clarity on what the payloads are, you know, in transactions. And finally, you know, you need to have clarity on the, on, on the requirements. So what, what are you actually requiring? What, when I issued a credential, what, what am I getting when I get the credential? What was built in to the credential? What verification was done when that, it, when that credential was issued? What's included in the payload of that credential so that it can be used outside of its potential sphere? So you know, we're focusing mostly around you know, disclosure and clarity of requirements to allow others to actually use it. When, when an external organization comes in, and um, th there's been quite a few that come in, obviously through the ecosystem foundry and directly to the foundation as well for consultation, the Ontario government being one that came in to the trust server IP, and I know the UK government as well had, had come in. Um, how, how does the trust server IP, and, uh, and anyone could kind of jump in here who, who was involved with these consults, but uh, how does the trust server IP guide, um, I guess, like these, these public sector um, groups, but also are, are there differences between guiding public sector versus private sector? Well, I, I can start it off because I've been working with, you know, the UK and I was involved in the Ontario and, you know, these are interested communities. They want to, to promote uh, digital life, digital communication. We've just, you know, we're still in the midst of a pandemic and we've changed our focus around how digital life is and we want to improve digital life and we want to foster trusted communication because our you know our lives have been restricted over the last you know you know 14 months or so and so how do we create the you know the the communication 
and, and interoperability standards to allow these communities to, to foster more trustworthy online communication. And so that's, they're interested parties, but they're basically, you know, incubating um, the ecosystems that would fall in more into, you know, Carl's realm. Do you have the side question there about, you know, how did, how did we convene that? How did we respond? It's really, it's an open community where we all collaborate and we say, okay, there's this call for a response. Is this worthy of, of the community to put together different, uh, different resources to, to try to articulate a response? So when something like the BC government project comes up, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to educate, you know, a large, a large group of, uh, a large group of people on, you know, some best practices of, best practice approaches to decentralized architecture, decentralized design, and all the principles around trust. Um, or the way I like to discuss it with some of my customers is removing the need for trust. I mean, that's the problem that I, you know, the fact that I need, if I need to trust you, to me, that's a problem, personally. I'd rather just not have to trust you. And then, and, and then or Paul likes, I think, a, a sh what do you say, Paul? Sure, assurance, not trust. Yeah, uh, yeah. Cryptographic assurance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and Andre, from um, I think that what, what's happening in Germany is extremely exciting, where kind of their um, people are taking this architecture and this viewpoint very seriously. Um, uh, how, how does kind of Germany approaching this whole thing to and really looking to adopt the the trust over IP architecture? Yeah, I I think. Um... We have to pull them in a bit more still to trust the IP. So I'm I'm trying my best here to make that happen. So actually, I think it's it's good that uh, at the high political levels in Germany, at least they have an understanding what's going on there in the world, and uh, actually they are leveraging the the great momentum that uh, the SSI community has built throughout the, the last years. And uh, we are we are very happy uh, that that uh, that yeah on on the highest political levels. Um, the understanding is now there that with uh, with self-sovereign identity and an and a European ecosystem leveraging self-sovereign identity, they can have a distinction. Um, well, basically um, against big tech and for Europe and have an, an interoperable and open ecosystem that will help to drive European uh, European interests and organizations forward. So I think this is this is now well known and uh, and. Uh, the, the momentum is is ever growing. In fact, there is uh, this month there there will be there will be uh, coming from from the chancellery in Germany a, a project that has been driven for for the past month. Uh, the the first pilot will be will be basically become public, and um, then uh, I think we will see a lot of stuff happening. And uh, this is uh, also on top of of the ID Union initiative, which is funded by the. Ministry of Economic Affairs. So there's lots of different streams working in the same direction in SSI. And I think this is based on the understanding that this is a global topic, which Trust OIP is helping uh, to, to shape and build and make more understandable and digestible for everyone who wants to get on the journey. Trust OIP has such a great resource pool of, of talented people who are thought leaders and experts in their, in their fields. And uh, trust OIP is such a great uh, uh, point where you can where you can tap into this this knowledgeable resource pool, and this is exactly what what, what we see happening with with good health paths and uh, 
the, the government consultation works that have already been done. So this wouldn't be wouldn't be happening if uh, if there wasn't the notion that there's the, the the thought leaders of the world getting together to work on these topics and uh, everyone sees the benefit of tapping into that. So I, I, I totally see the, the value and the advantage that the trust authority is providing there. Actually, um, it's also a nice uh, it's a nice um, place to incubate um, kind of new collaborations between uh, the people that are interested in decentralized technologies without necessarily being at the government level. So, you know, I've seen a lot of people that uh, are working in spaces and then they think, oh, that's I love what you're doing. Oh, you know, we're doing this. Oh, that's cool. And they kind of collaborate and they build some kind of new new technology and stuff. So that's really nice to see. It's kind of very organic and it's sort of it's it's not all about trust over IP, they can kind of shoot off and do their own side projects and then come back to trust over IP and explain, you know, what they've done, what kind of things they've solved. Um, and uh, yeah, so in that way, I think it's a super organic space. I think Andre hit a really important point for, for me in the day to day and, and the value of trust over IP is you'd be hard pressed to find commu any community that has such a diverse, uh, diverse set of, of, of very, uh, very well, well informed and intelligent um, members on the subject. I mean, you, I don't, even, I don't think most budgets could support uh, paying even on a consulting basis to get the, this diversity of skill and just diversity of perspective. And for me personally, that's the day-to-day -day value that's uh, really immeasurable. Really, uh, when you know, when you just consider the commitment to the community, uh, but the rest of the reciprocal value back to me is just learning from all, all these fascinating minds and and these 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 projects uh like the id union project and the, all, all the lissy work out there that in turn is inspiring ecosystem and utility envision envisioning in the united states um i, I know that u.s senators for example have been discussing the great work that andre's been talking about so you know to just to add to to carl's point i mean you know the the good health pass you know joined with trust over ip in, into solving a global problem. And so they, you know, they marshaled nine work drafting groups together. And there's been a, you know, a concerted effort in the last month uh, to put documents out. And we have 150 pages right now of very well constructed recommendations. I mean, it's just, it's just a, a tremendous amount of effort that could not be done unless you have an organization putting them all together tough to keep up with all, all the momentum that's happening in the space. Just I, I echo your thoughts, Carl, and everyone else, just the amount of intelligent, hardworking, good intentioned people that are going in the same direction. It's tough to keep up. And um, it's interesting as more projects or ecosystems are popping up, uh, they're laying the foundation for others where something you maybe didn't think was possible uh, yesterday is today and you have, you know, the blueprint in front of you to really uh, create a project based off of that. And one other wonderful aspect is you also have competitors, uh, companies that are competing directly in the same space, doing the same thing, joining joining their minds together and coming up with better, better, more powerful solutions for their customers because of that reciprocal benefit. It's something you hear about with, with new abevers. Sometimes they're shy about their own IP or their own companies, but but quickly as you start to to participate in the, in the community, you, you'll see that there's there's really fluid and uh, agile ways to, to share ideas and, and really improve your own commercial objectives while, while improving the, the greater objectives around digital trust and, and interoperability. 
Yeah, and, that, and that's and there's an interesting space that uh, for all of this to work, which is is going to be developing over the next couple of years, and that's that's really in the uh, the data governance authorities, uh, at, both at a jurisdictional level, but more also the trust ecosystems within those jurisdictions, and that kind of uh, you know it, it it really kind of you're forcing this sense of collaboration for people that are trying to solve uh, you know a common uh, a common problem or you know working for a common purpose. And um, and and I think trust over IP is just a, a fantastic framework to start uh, noodling these these spaces, which are becoming in, inevitable for the whole thing to work. So, it's uh, it, it really is a, a fantastic space to be uh, noodling in. One of the areas that um, one of the many I would say, but well, one that excites me quite a bit, and I know Andre, you brought this up in the past too, is just. There's so much momentum behind verifiable credentials as a whole. Like I, I think the the whole, if you take the the bigger umbrella, like just the whole digital identity space, it's kind of understanding some of the benefits that come with verifiable credentials. But I, one of the underappreciated um, innovations that I think is just gonna it's gonna disrupt so many things is the API-less uh, aspect to it, right? Where I, I could completely disrupt spaces and be completely more agile than others by being able to leverage services without needing to do an integration. Yeah, totally. I think this is the, this is one, one key part of my speeches these days, actually. So um, in fact, we're calling it a self-sovereign identity and, and the, the identity implies we are dealing just with identity, but it's, it's in fact so much more. It's a key enabler of, of any type of digitalization effort because we are you're able to pass on trustworthy data without having ever agreed on an interface before. So obviously this requires our understanding of the data model and the semantics, which is totally Paul's domain. So this is the key requirement that we have to basically pass on with each credential, but then basically the whole merits of a data-driven economy can unfold without APIs being specified upfront. And I think this is the real game changer. So even, even though it's called self-sovereign identity, and this is the term that has been coined, and I know that many people don't like it, it's in fact so much more. It's an enabler for transporting trusted data across the network world. And this is brilliant. And this is the reason why everyone's going to like it and love it at some point. And it's just an inevitable piece of, of all the digitalization efforts. And that, that, that perspective sort of matches, again, our day-to-day -day with, our, with our enterprise customers in that um, as soon as they understand the concept of a verifiable credential, passwordless login, data privacy, uh, data minimization, and all that, they, they love all those ideas, but that's just scratching the surface. You know, we talk about digital transformation. Think about all the analog processes that are still moving around, all the papers that are still, still being pushed uh, for verification and, and any, any kind of business process. For example, we had one education uh, customer in an open, open sector, public sector engagement where they wanted to issue pay slips as verifiable credentials to be interoperable with with uh, loans and 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 real estate, and getting real estate and housing, uh, for the for their students and, and their alumni. So that that digitization is is I think where you really find the depth and the and the breadth of the value of this technology. The credentials, the passwordless login, that's all great. Um, the market's seen a lot of that, but but there's 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 real depth in in answering the call to digital transformation that 
that the enterprise has been trying to resolve through several generations of technology now, I think. So we finally have some, some really important uh, uh, quantum leaps forward to, to improving the digital trust experience for everyone. Yeah, and there's a there's another in, important aspect as well. So we're talking a lot about the kind of the transient objects, obviously with with verifiable credentials. But um, you know, I'm really interested in like where the source of that data is coming from, and and that's that's another uh, another nit that uh, that 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 we're working on, not just in this community, but across a number of communities. Uh, you know, finding out uh, you know the determinist, uh, sorry, the uh, the persistent records in a database. And when I say a database, it could be a database that's held in a personal data store that's under your control, right? But that's your that's your root of uh, that your 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 root of authenticity, if you like, or your your your. And from there, you can kind of build your uh, verifiable credentials and stuff. So it's it's a super interesting space because you can think of it as uh, you know the 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 control is totally right back with the with the citizen. With all of this, right? Where if you think they, they they have access to their data, they can create credentials from that. It's got an authentic source. It's been certified by uh, by cert certifying um, authorities, um, and it's yeah. It's, uh, but the important thing is that the data throughout all of that can flow from peer to peer, uh, without uh, you know with being safe and secure, uh, using verifiable credentials, uh, the semantic containers. Uh, good semantics, all of that stuff. But the important thing is that you're you're working peer to peer, and it's totally secure. Uh, and then the whole ecosystem will just unfold and be an, a, an amazing place for you know safe transaction, safe transacting. I, I love your point, Carl, too, where you're you're scratching the surface with use cases like passwordless authentication and certain access um, things. But but really, like with these types of use cases, you could 10x 10x current processes, but uh, the stuff that I think excites all of us is the hundred and thousand X possibilities that is just gonna grow the entire pie. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To stay up to speed with future episode releases, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever channel you're listening to it right now. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to me directly. You can find me online. I'm quite active on LinkedIn and Twitter, so I look forward to hearing from you. See you all next time.